Happy Friday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. Not Boring Founders is a new podcast that I'm doing that I'm really excited about. Every day I get to talk to founders who are building the future. They're building some of the fastest growing companies in the world. They're trying new things. They're building teams. They're figuring everything out on the fly. And the point of the podcast is really just to have a conversation with them, catch up, understand what they're doing and where they're at in their journey uh, and how they're thinking about building their businesses. Today, we have a special edition. I got together with Garvahuja at Thrive and Juliana and Reed at Stitch, which is a not boring capital portfolio company. And we did a fireside, the zero to one founder's journey. We all decided that we throw on record and release this as a podcast so that we could share it just beyond the people who came to the event. We had a great turnout, but there's thousands of you out there listening to this and we wanted to spread the word. I, I think what Reed and Juliana are doing is incredibly cool. It's a, a prototypical API first company. They're just a little bit over a year old, but already growing tremendously fast and, and doing pretty amazing things, particularly uh, in terms of the team that they're growing and the product that they're building. If you are building or investing in software companies, this is a must listen. First, a word from our sponsors, Cometeer. Cometeer is the fuel of not boring. It's the coffee that keeps me going. I have three Cometeer pods a day, at least sometimes when I'm really trying to get a piece out. There are four Cometeer pods, but it's so easy. It's so delicious. I literally just warm up some water, warm up the pod, melt it, dump it into a cup, pour the hot water over, and I'm good to go. The coffee is better than anything that I've had in a coffee shop before. I never drank coffee black before. I drink this coffee black. I'm not a coffee snob. I can tell the difference. This stuff is that good. And for not boring listeners, you can get 50% off your first order of Cometeer by going to cometeer.com slash not boring. That's cometeer.com slash not boring. Now let's get to it. You watch me Welcome and thank you everybody for coming out today for the Zero to One Founders Journey. I'm Packy McCormick. I write a newsletter called Not Boring. And with us today, we have Gara Vahuja, an investor at Thrive Capital, and the stars of the show, Juliana Lamb and Reed McGinley-Stemple, the co-founders of Stitch. What we're doing here today is going through their journey. In the past year and a half, they've left phenomenal jobs at big tech companies, started something new, hired an unbelievable team, raised money from leading investors like Thrive and Benchmark, and are building a killer product. So today is all about learning everything that we possibly can from them. Gaurav, can you introduce yourself? Awesome. And quick introduction for myself. Uh, I work at Thrive Capital, and I had the honor of investing in Stitch about uh, nine months ago, so end of 2020. And it's been an awesome journey to work with these two. I'm also good friends with Packy and, and uh, a big fan of getting to follow anything he does in the world. One quick note, if you guys have questions, we have a ton of questions prepared to ask these two and excited to hear their thoughts. But feel free to put stuff in the Zoom chat. We'll, we probably won't be able to get to all of them, but any, any of the juicy ones, we'll try to make sure we get to and sprinkle in throughout the way. Thank you, Garv. So should we kick this off? Reed and Juliana, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself. Tell us what you're doing before you started Stitch and then how you came to found Stitch. Yeah, definitely. I'll start with a little bit of background and kind of half of the origin story and then hand it off to Juliana. So we, we met first back in 2017 when we were both working at Plaid. 
Uh, Giuliano is on the engineering team. I spent three years at Plaid, first half on the go-to-market team, and then transitioned over to product. And on the product team is actually where I focused on an area that Juliana also worked on called authentication at Plaid, where I think one of the things that's not always clear to everyone that maybe has heard about Plaid as a company is that you as an end user have probably used its UI many, many times. Anytime you've gone to connect your bank account in Coinbase, Venmo, Square Cash, et cetera, you're using Plaid's UI. And as a result, the authentication team at Plaid thought a lot about what is the authentication logic that we're giving to an end user when they're trying to connect a bank account? Because there's kind of, you know, a major aspect of security. We want to make sure people's bank accounts don't get stolen. There aren't bot attacks, et cetera. But also there's a big piece around conversion there. Because when you think about, you know, if you're only charging customers when somebody can successfully connect a bank account, and if you're at the bottom of funnel for the acquisition and onboarding for Coinbase, Truebill, et cetera, really important to have a really like clean user experience and convert users as well as possible. And so I give that context because I would say the bane of our existence, you know, as we sat back and reflected on our time working on various projects on authentication at Plaid was passwords, both on the security side and on the conversion side. On the security side, you know, you'll see almost on a weekly or monthly basis, some large company has a password breach like Yahoo, Verizon, LinkedIn, et cetera. And because users you know, tend to not use password managers and they're reusing passwords across sites, a lot of what we had to do at Plaid was protect against what we called credential stuffing attacks, where you know, attackers are trying to take those stolen credentials and see if they can monetize them by seeing if the user reused them at Bank of America, Coinbase, Chase, et cetera. I'll let Juliana go into a little bit more detail on that because she actually built a lot of the fraud engine there. Um, and then the other piece was around conversion. And we always had kind of this dream at Plaid of, could we eliminate passwords from the flow because it was the single largest source of drop-off? And I think as we were working on that and kind of exploring like the conversion uplift that you could get there, we noticed a lot of early adopters like Square Cash, Monzo Bank, Revolut, Medium, et cetera, had fully gone passwordless, but it was going to be a while before the legacy banks had kind of caught up to it. And so we had started building some of this functionality in-house at Plaid but realized, A, it wasn't really the right market in terms of who was going to be adopting passwordless. And B, I think the bigger pain point was finding that it's actually really hard to build passwordless authentication in-house and do it well and securely. So that's just like part of kind of the origin was, I, I think Juliana and I were having coffee one day, kind of hitting our heads against the wall and all the authentication projects we've been working on. And I think the, the term we used is, why is there not a stripe for authentication? And that's kind of what we're trying to do here at Stitch. So I'll hand it over to Juliana for the rest. Well, yeah, my background is in engineering. I was at Strava on their growth engineering team. So more focused on sort of the user conversion retention pieces of the funnel there. And then joined Plaid in 2017 on their backend team. And as Reed mentioned, spent the bulk of my time there um, working on fraud and in particular pro protecting against account takeover attacks. So really saw firsthand how bad most people are with password reuse and sort of the downstream effects of what happens when there is a credential breach and those credentials are out there on the web and, and people are trying to take over accounts with some value using them. And then sort of the final piece here is that 
I spent a little over a year as a product manager at a company called Very Good Security, where I worked on a project to rip out Auth0. And so I was sort of in the middle of that project. Reed was in the middle of the work that he was talking about. We were getting coffee and, and just like really frustrated with this experience of building authentication. And we were kind of like scratching our heads, like why hasn't somebody built this? Everyone needs to build user authentication. Why is there not that Stripe for Auth yet? And then ended up spending sort of the first half of 2020 sort of asking that question of everyone we were catching up with and, and just trying to figure out like if our idea for this product was something that resonated more broadly. And after hearing over and over again how excited people were for something better when it came to authentication, we finally took the leap in June of 2020 last year. What was that? Like, like what was, what was the hardest part of making the leap? You both had very good jobs, very comfortable. I'm sure frustrating that you had this problem that you had to deal with and wanted to build a solution, but what was the calculus in making the switch and what were the kind of the emotions behind making the switch? I think the boring answer, but I think the, you know, the true one for most founders is like the really practical kind of economic concerns about leaving, you know, a job that's pays well, you have good health insurance. And then for me in particular, I had a partner that was in grad school. So it was like, could you go to $0 income? And then they have student debt and also expenses and handle that. So that was definitely like the biggest hesitancy. But I think to Juliana's point around like what we spent our time doing between December, 2019 and May, 2020, when we gave notice to VGS and Plaid was just like each conversation was giving us more and more conviction that we had to do this. And then once I got, I, I, I told my now wife, uh, I got the thumbs up and I was like, okay, if she's good with us making like potentially no money for the next year, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with savings. But I, I think it's like the pragmatic things that hold you back the most, but at some point it just tilts in terms of excitement for what you want to do. Yeah. I don't think there was ever like a decision. I, I feel like we just kept having these conversations and getting so excited about this idea and like sort of once you yeah check the boxes that like, okay, I, I'd be okay like quitting my job and giving up that salary. I think it just felt so obvious that this is, is something that we needed to go tackle and that we were like the right founding team to do it as well. And so I think it was really valuable to have that like build up to it, right? Where we also spend a bunch of time sort of figuring out, you know, what are we going to work on if we go do this too? Like, what does the product actually look like? Who might be potential customers and, and had a clear vision for what that would look like? Yeah. And I'll just add from, from having met both of you shortly after starting the company, it's pretty, it's hard to generalize each individual who's ever thinking about a startup, generalize their economic situation, their risk tolerance, what's going on in their family, you never know. And so that that's going to be case by case. The thing that is generalizable, and I think the learning that you two can 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 give to the rest of the the, the engineers in the world and the, the business people in the world looking to start companies is there was a clarity of thought that you had before you start the company on what exactly you wanted to do. And that that only comes from trying the story out enough with your friends, with your peers, with potential customers, like you said, Juliana, getting it pushed back on, getting questions like we have in the chat of, hey, how is this actually different from Auth0? Like this, this sounds kind of similar and, and having to answer those, answer them in a tough way, in a, in a way that you honestly believe um, and feel good about them is the way to test your conviction. And by the way, that, that is what your job is as founders is to evangelize the companies to um, those pesky investors like myself, to future hires, to customers. Um, if you can't tell that story to the nth degree of detail with that nth degree of clarity, it's not going to last.
Um, so that was the thing that was most impressive in just one meeting with the two of you that, that I was able to hang my hat on from the investment side. I love getting both both perspectives here. This is awesome. So what what is Stitch? So what do you what do you end up building? I, I know the problem that we're trying to solve here. What does Stitch look like today? And has that deviated at all from kind of what you were thinking about when you left your jobs in May 2020? Yeah, I don't think it's deviated really at all. I think there's some things where it augmented it in terms of, oh, that's also a really interesting adjacent space. But I'll kind of give like a high level. And then maybe this goes into a, if Juliana one talks about kind of like the difference between us and some of the incumbents. But I think like if you boil down that, you know, the initial thought that we had Stripe for authentication, if you boil down like the initial things that we were most excited about, about that concept and what we're still working on is a few of the problems we had with the existing solutions is that the developer experience was not where we expected it to be in terms of ease of integration, but then also flexibility. And flexibility is like a key part that is sometimes not always included in terms of like the tenets of what makes a great developer experience. But not only does it make it easier for someone to work with you, it also gives you way more serendipity on the platform in terms of what people can do with your product. And so Stitch at our core is a platform for passwordless authentication. We call ourselves user infrastructure for modern applications, which we acknowledge as a nebulous term, but we are using this because we want people to think about like the way that you manage users, you are wasting sprints all of the time, reinventing the wheel on what user management looks like. Sometimes that's creating your initial signup flow, then your login flow, Sometimes you're going to create then an invite user flow. Uh, maybe you're sending promotional promotional emails to users to engage them, and that's a logged out experience, or maybe you want it to be logged in. But effectively, like we create the APIs, and then we also have some front end SDKs that wrap the APIs if you'd prefer to use those, which allow you to use things like you know biometrics, OAuth, email magic links, SMS verification, and so we think having the platform for all of those options is really important so that you can stitch them together in you know, more compelling ways than we can even envision. And so like an example of, maybe I'll just give one quick example of kind of like what Stitch is. And we, we actually talk about ourselves internally as not as an authentication company. We talk about ourselves as like a friction reduction company. And obviously a lot of what we do is passwordless authentication because we think that's one of the biggest points of friction for both developers and users. But one of the recent products that we shipped is something called embeddable magic links, which is this concept of, you know, we have logged in experiences in a few different places in our personal lives. We have our email inbox, our phone inbox, we have our device, we have our browser often. Those are a few of the core ones. And today we still, we don't really enable very seamless handshakes between those and logged in experiences that you want. And so embeddable magic links are a product that we heard a lot of demand for from a variety of verticals. You know, I think in particular e-commerce fintech where people want to be able to send engagements to users and if a user is accessing that from a logged in state on an email inbox or a phone inbox, so I'm clicking this like $10 off promotional email, I want that to be an embedded login experience so that I don't drop them off at the next page when that user's high intent. And so that's like probably more detail than you wanted on this question. But the reason I provide that is like, yes, we're a platform for passwordless authentication. But the reason we talk about user infrastructure so much is we see our API is enabling authentication to be woven into different experiences with your end users. So Juliana, do you think I missed anything there? Anything you'd add? I think just to like go a little bit deeper on what we mean by like flexibility, what does like Stripe for authentication mean is being really API first and how we think about the product. Something that I was frustrated with, with Auth0 is just sort of like the lack of 
control that you had over the user experience that you were built. So that's, you know, maybe great if you like don't want to spend much time on authentication, but for many people, authentication is like a really core part of your brand experience, right? It's critical for onboarding. It's critical for ongoing engagement with your users. If you can't get through sign up or sign in, you can't use the app, right? And so making that feel like your application own those brand elements is, is super critical for most people. And so with the API first approach, and we do have SDKs as well, but they're all sort of customizable so it can look and feel like your application. It abstracts away all the complicated pieces of auth, but gives you that sort of control over your user experience. You know, I think the motivation that you both have described in this conversation of starting the company is dual pronged. Most developer tools are not that there's, that there's anything wrong with this, but most developer tools are solving a developer pain point. I need to build X for my company to exist. Let me reduce the burden of how long it takes, how complicated it is to build X. Um, here, and, and this is the way you start out the story with what time at Plaid, it was also, I need to increase conversion. This is a user-facing problem and a real business ROI. And so I think that dual-pronged approach is, you know, today you got to continue to sell to developers and hopefully I'm sure there, there are many on this call, people that, that are perhaps interested in using Stitch down the, down the road, but it's also, hey, I need to sell to the product manager. I need the product manager. I need the business manager to understand this is something that will be a revenue fix for you at the same time. Just because the question is, is in our, is in our, in our chat, Auth0, Okta, there, there's a ton of other names out here. They all have some white paper on password lists. What's, what's, the, what's the, the big fuss about Stitch? Yeah, to, to give a little bit more context to kind of what, and flexibility is a key part of this. If you look at kind of the incumbent solutions around authentication, they've taken a very widget-based approach to how you should do authentication. So you've probably been on many different sites that use Auth0, Okta, Cognito, where you click a button to sign up or log in, you get redirected to another page and there's like a hosted login page. That's fine. Like that is a use case where sometimes people do want to redirect to another page. But the reason we have that on the web is not necessarily because that's a better user experience or even a better developer experience in most use cases. Often that inflexibility hurts developers because they can't do what they want. But the reason that we actually got to that kind of outcome in terms of how people did authentication when they started companies in 2010s is that the primary building block for authentication then was passwords. And so if I was trying to build authentication as a service, I wanted to make it inflexible so that the developer that integrated me never touched the memorized secret password that an end user was giving to them. So I would redirect you and I'd say, you're not going to put this on your front page. You're not going to embed this into like your native form. You are going to redirect to this other page and then we're going to handle everything. It's kind of like, it's not an exact analogy, but I see it a little bit as like what Stripe was able to do relative to PayPal. Where like PayPal is still a great company. It's like good products but it is pretty inflexible and it is more, it's not as like, you can't use in all the use cases you'd want to. And so when you take that API first approach that Juliana mentioned earlier, what you're doing is, yes, we can also offer the widget-based approach on top for those developers that don't wanna to touch anything, but often the customers that we find coming to us, either A, have a really keen ownership of the UX and design on their application. So, you know, it's one of the things that differentiates them from their competitors and they still don't want to spend multiple quarters spinning up auth primitives, or B, they actually have a use case that is impossible with a widget-based approach to authentication. Like we have people that are using us right now that trigger the signup flow from like a Salesforce API call or a Zapier API call. And those are the types of things that you're just not going to be able to easily integrate without breaking other parts to like the architecture of what these password as a service companies were able to create. And the one last thing I'll note on that is 
The big difference between password as a service to passwordless as a service is that we are not dealing with memorized secrets. So I don't have to be so concerned about the developer touching that UX and UI. We're dealing with temporary tokens in every single circumstance where it's like a magic link that expires, an SMS passcode, et cetera. And the developer doesn't even know what it is because we control the sending and the like delivery to the user. And then it gets entered in a screen and the developer authenticates it. But there's no like, there's no area where you're dealing with phishing where a, develop, a malicious developer might try to steal passwords, credentials, et cetera. So that's a little bit of the context. Juliana, I'm curious, would you add any more in kind of the differentiation there? Nailed it. So I guess if you're going through the, the founder's journey here, you had a pain point, you figured out an idea, you tested it with some friends, then you decided to go all in, start building. You've been on fire as well with on the, on the customer side of the business. So what point did you start selling the product? Was it before you had anything built? Was it after you had a working product built? How'd you get your first customers? I think we started getting design partners when we had like a very surface level proof of concept. And so that was like, you know, back when we were raising a year ago and when we had just started the company and kind of Juliana had just built the proof of concept herself. And so we started getting design partners. We weren't trying to get them to pay for it yet. We just wanted to validate like this would solve a, a need. And then I'd say as we like ramped up the, you know, building on the product and started exposing it publicly, um, it was still in a private beta for a couple quarters up until I want to say like near the end of 2020, it was in private beta. And what we were doing there that was actually really helpful before we opened the floodgates and went to public beta and then self-serve sign up is that we would do a Zoom call with every single developer that was integrating the product. And we would just have them voice over every like, you know, piece of information as they were walking through the docs, developer guides, et cetera, where they'd say, this is actually a piece of friction. I don't know what to do right here. Or this was really delightful. I like that piece invest more in the delightful pieces, try to abstract away the friction. And so that was one of like the key things we worked on up until end of 2020. And then that was when we also started signing some deals as people would say, you know, we would talk like, we really didn't know what we were doing at first when we were starting to sign deals where someone would be like, what's your pricing? And I didn't realize they were looking at like Okta where Okta is like $2 per user or like 10 cents per user. They're like, yeah, done, we'll do it. And so I think like, definitely we've gotten to a more scalable model now where we have a self-serve flow that we released early summer where anyone on the internet can now sign up for the product. And I think actually one of the things I would recommend others in the B2B space that are trying to get to mass market appeal is that it's helpful to have the design partners and those people that are iterating when it's clearly in a private beta and you're going to make breaking API changes, et cetera, or breaking product changes. The thing though, that I think is just like where things become much more compelling as a company is the second that you can publicly expose this online and anyone that has a problem can find you to solve their pain point. Because no matter how large my network is, if I boil it down to like the design partners I know that I'm going to sell to, I'm always going to be trying to shoehorn it a little bit to like, is the time right? And is the product right for what they need? But then you'll be really surprised when you open it up on the internet that like, I remember one of the first shocks we had was like two weeks after we launched self-serve a fortune 100 financial institution self-served and created an integration and proof of concept in like 30 minutes. And then we were on a call with like five of their execs the next week. And that's just never a customer we would have ever encountered if we were trying to just only founder led sales, this motion. And so I, I think about like the founder led sales piece is really helpful for like the private beta experience, getting people uh, to give you a lot of feedback. And then I think about it mostly as like an assist motion to you should have some other funnel that is more scalable because that's where you're going to get more interesting feedback on what the mass market appeal of the product is. 
this goes a bit to the question in the chat, but this is a conversation we've had at the board level, and I'm not sure we'll ever have a perfect answer. There's a choice between let's just focus on the customers that are coming inbound through our self-serve channel. And then there's a bunch of other customers who we could go get introductions to. Maybe our investors have introduced us, maybe our employees know them, maybe we used to work with these companies. Let's go after them and actually seek intros, go through a top-down sales motion. How do you how do you balance those two as an early stage company while you're still building out a full product? Yeah, and I'll let Juliana share a little bit more on like the product thinking here. But I if if an if one of those, you know, intros is actually like interested in like they have an authentication pain point, never turn them away from conversation, like figure out like, is there something there? But I think often what you'll find is if you have a clear enough vision for what your product roadmap is, the worst thing I think you can do to yourself is if some, you know, big customer and logo comes after you and says, here's a very niche authentication thing that I need solved and I'll pay you, you know, $100,000, $500,000 a year to do it. Two bad things are going to happen, even if you sign that contract. One, you're going to deviate from like the rest of the roadmap, which you apparently previously had conviction would apply to thousands of companies or millions of companies. And the second thing is that you're going to become terrified of losing that revenue once they sign. So every single follow-up that they ask for, no matter whether it makes any sense for the rest of your roadmap and customer base is going to be like an all hands on deck, like reprioritize the tiling. And I think that's where things get really dangerous. And I think, you know, Juliana on like the product bench side has been like super disciplined around like making sure we're executing on what the platform roadmap is. And I think we consistently talk about these other more niche requests that come in and there are things that we want to solve in the future, but we're not trying to be fully at feature parity with like Okta right now, right? We're a one-year-old company, not a 12-year-old company. But I think that it would be a mistake if we overcorrected for some of those logos. I think you should always have those conversations because sometimes as we found with that financial institution, what you have and what you're building actually does align. But often you're also going to find like really customer requests that might not scale to other customers. Yeah, I think it's a really fine balance of being very like customer centric and like listening to feedback from prospects and existing customers and focusing on like building those relationships, but then also holding a really hard line when it comes to sticking to that product roadmap. Something I think we do really well is basically tracking feature requests and we'll add like every conversation we have where somebody brings up one of those feature requests. And so that's like a helpful input. You know, one person on a feature request is, is definitely not reason enough to start to prioritize it. But if you're hearing over and over again, you can start to like maybe see where you thought something was not quite as important as it is and like shift priorities a little bit. But I think having that discipline and sort of trying to get that breadth of feedback from prospects, customers, et cetera, as well as like our own sort of, you know, analysis of like the market and where we think authentication is moving and use all those inputs to create that sort of strict product roadmap. At this point in the company, Juliana, are you formally tracking, we had this many requests for X feature, or is it you're having all of these conversations and really just getting a feel for what the market? Yeah. So for feature requests, we add them as a ticket in linear. We have like a board just dedicated to feature requests. And so Reed and others on the go-to-market team will add like customer snippets of like this prospect, like asked for this, this is their use case. Something we really emphasize as well 
his like sort of peeling back asks to understand like the root issue that the customer is trying to solve. Because I think that's where you can get the really valuable product feedback. You know, someone's going to be complaining on the surface level about like some issue, but you have to like understand why they're asking for a specific thing. And so making sure that we have that like sort of primary source context on those feature requests, I think is also really valuable because sometimes we'll see a pattern of some like root cause that is surfacing as some other issue, but then we can identify like a better way to solve that root cause issue than what the customer asked for sort of at surface level. And then just one tactical thing that I love about the feature request system that Juliana set up also so that engineering has visibility and it's a very small thing is that we use linear. And so we, as she mentioned, we have the board just for feature requests and you just add the snippet context every time that's integrated into a Slack channel. That's, you know, all customer feedback and it's a required Slack channel for everyone to be in. And so every single engineer designer, et cetera, sees every single like feature request. And it doesn't mean like go jump on it, right? These are all like future feature requests. And then it's up to us to prioritize on like a quarterly basis, or, you know, sometimes if it's more urgent, but I think that that is the you know, that's definitely like, I think in previous jobs, we'd use like Google groups, feature requests and just everything gets lost. Somebody will create like a new thread for a feature request because they don't remember it exists. And so, I, and then it's also hard to just like keep up with it. So it's a very small thing, but I think it's made a pretty big difference in terms of visibility. Cool. All right. So we are switching gears to fundraising. You've both been pretty phenomenal at fundraising. I remember when, when, we had our first conversation. I think I was sold on the call and Garv's an investor and he's a tough, he's a tougher critic than I am. So how'd you craft your narrative? What was the process like? how did you think about when to raise like the getting started pieces of fundraising? How did you, how'd you think about that? I think I had like two major learnings that I would advise other founders coming out of fundraising. One is actually on the process side of like how to think about going into it. And the second's on like narrative. The first on the process is I would say we've at first kind of started stumbling into our first fundraise. And I'd say definitely try to avoid that if you can. I think it's really hard when you're doing your first raise ever not to kind of stumble into it because, oh, hey, I talked to my one friend that was a VC and oh, he looped me into a partner. And so now I'm talking with the partner next week. Oh, and now we're pitching that person and we haven't started any of the rest of the fundraise process. And that was kind of what actually happened with us is like our first term sheet was, I thought I was just talking to a friend about the idea. And then he was like, oh, the partner would love to just like, you know, chat about it a little bit. You know, he invests in companies like this. I think we had a couple of conversations with them. And then there's like a term sheet in front of you. And I think one of the things that can happen when you stumble into this is that, you know, your eyes kind of light up when you get offered millions of dollars, but is that actually the right partner or the right terms for the company? Fortunately, also, I've, we found Silicon Valley is like very rumor based. So there was like a lot of, it was like pretty easy for us to kickstart the process after that. But that's like one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to other friends that are raising is like, be really diligent about when you want to kick off your process and make like a spreadsheet of every fund that you want to talk to, who is your intro individual, whether that's a friend or you have to do cold outreach to them and then kick it all off in the same week so that you're condensing it as much as possible. Uh, Cause you also want, it's helpful to have asymmetric information during the process. So that's one thing on process. The second thing on narrative, I think like, I'm curious what Juliano would add to this, but I think the single best piece of advice we got from some friends when we were showing them the deck was they would ask a lot of questions about like, Kind of what people are asking earlier in the chat, which is like, why would someone choose this over Auth0 or Okta? And we were giving like really specific, like 
kind of like almost quotes or anecdotes about like what people were saying was really painful about the existing solution, how Stitch could solve that. That was one thing. And the second question they asked was like, how do you become a hundred billion dollar company? And we had a really clear view for that, but we just thought it was like so presumptuous to put that in your deck of like how you could get to that eventual outcome. And so I think those two things of like weaving at the seed stage where you don't like any real data you have is usually blips. So like anecdata data actually matters a lot for VCs to like wrap their heads around like why this is different. So I think weaving that into the deck is quite important when you're making other points. Then on the kind of like eventual outcome of like, how can you be a hundred billion plus? Like, I think it's very reasonable for you to have your like last two vision slides as long as they're like well thought out of if things go right, how can this become really, really big? Because I think that's one of the things that, you know, investors get really excited about is both like clarity of thought there, but then also knowing that, you know, there's more to your product than just wanting to hone in on like a smaller market and authentication is really big market anyways, but we also had some, some bigger visions as well. I think taking that time to really develop that narrative and story is paid tons of dividends because it also has an impact when it comes to recruiting, et cetera. And so I think that's like, you know, a lot of what you sort of like don't see is those like six months leading up to our first fundraise of like getting those anecdotes and really sort of like forming our opinion of, you know, what is it we're building? What is that like grand vision? How does this play out? And then taking the time as we were starting to fundraise, like pitch all of our friends, basically, we did tons and tons of practice pitches and really spent the time to like craft that story. And, you know, now I like, tell that story like multiple times a day on recruiting calls. Right. And so um, if you really nail it, I think that can be super valuable and it's harder to like dedicate the time to workshopping that later on. So investing in that upfront, I think is, is really important. Yeah. I was going to ask you just take the floor. No, it's, it's look, this, there's a few things that we evaluated. Hopefully some of this resonates for any, any of the potential founders that are on the call. Sure. At the earliest stages, there's not tons of cohort data. There's not years and years of, of customers you can go pour through. There's not a bunch of customer calls you can do. So the early stage investors are looking at very different things. They're looking at the team and they're looking at the, the potential of what this could be. So on the team, there's a couple of factors. One I already talked about, which is that clarity of thought, having here in this case, two people who would push the idea in every which way you could possibly push it and having the answers to those questions. Um, you need that to, to ever have a shot of building it. You need to at least have that clarity of thought up front. And then the second is, if this isn't going to be a $100 billion company one day, you need founders who are constantly pushing themselves to grow and evolve. And I think it was very clear that these two were just highly self-reflective individuals who were aware of their own flaws and weaknesses and where they needed to surround themselves from a leadership perspective, from a team perspective to complement themselves. But the founders they are today was different from the founders they were when, you know, we first invested. It's going to have to be different six months from now, you know, and, and when they're when they're managing a, a thousand person organization, it's also going to have to be very different. And so that happens much more quickly in venture world where, you know, admittedly, companies are not growing in a natural organic way. This is infusion of massive amounts of capital and trying to go after big oftentimes winner take most opportunities that takes founders who are thinking that way. So that's the that's the team bucket. The, hey, well, there are no customers today, but how big could this be? It's it's similar to what you guys said, which is this is a $100 billion market. What's the TAM? Sometimes there are products that are actually creating TAM. Here, the fun part is that any user-facing application should be using Stitch. There's, there's really no reason for it to not. And 
fortunately, I don't have to size that one. I can I can tell you it's pretty big when you when you put in any single user facing application, web or browser. Then the last thing is, how do you within that opportunity? What if copycat starts tomorrow? What if five other copycats start tomorrow? I buy the differentiation from Auth0, and there we look for things that I'll just broadly bucket this as dynamics or business dynamics that make the business get better as it gets bigger. And I think here there's clearly one where every time a user is authenticated through Stitch, the, the network of users that Stitch is, is touching, is communicating with, is understanding, is growing. That base of users, and it's it's going to become, it's going to manifest in the product in, in, in the future. That base of users is now more likely to convert, whether it's web off then on the on the on the browser or an SMS code or being able to more in a more safe way authenticate a user on a hard token in the future. All these things will actually help increase conversion for that next client that you're trying to go sell because it's saying, I've got a million users that just got authenticated yesterday versus 10. And so that dynamic makes you stronger than anybody who does try to go and copy these, these principles, these ideas, not to mention all the operational challenges that come with just building in the first place. Brilliant. So how do you, that, I guess, from the beginning, you go through the process, you've landed some unbelievable investors on the cap table. how do you go about that piece of the process picking? I'm sure you know, there were multiple term sheets that you had put in front of you. How do you, how do you think about the, the back half of the process? I feel like the first thing Juliana and I talk about after we come out of an investor call is like the quality of the questions that they were asking. And it is, that's a really easy marker of like whether we think they'd be additive to our growth as a company and as founders is like, do they push us in the right directions or are they like even missing what we're trying to do and asking in like a completely different direction? So that's usually like a very initial litmus test. And then after that, it's like just getting to, I think the other big thing is like getting to know them personally and that like, you have similar, not, you don't have to have like exactly similar personalities, but you need to be able to be amicable and that like they can take feedback well, that they give feedback. And I think those are things that just come from developing the relationship. Those are a couple of things. Juliana, curious what else you did. Yeah. I think one thing I mentioned when people ask us about like our board and how that works, I think both Gaurav and Chafin are really good at being sounding boards and providing like examples and evidence to help us make a decision. They're never like trying to make a decision for us, but are really good at like pattern matching and sort of like being that sounding board for us. And, you know, sometimes guiding us in a direction that we didn't know we needed to be guided in. But I think that's something that we really looked for versus someone who is like so opinionated about like what, how to build a company or how to build this company that, you know, we weren't going to be able to build the company that, you know, we're setting out to build. And I think that is something that you can get from like those questions and understanding, do they like get your vision, but then also like, how do you sort of like ask them questions? Like, how do they talk about how they work with founders, doing founder references, all of that can be super valuable as well. But I think that sort of like sounding board is one of the things that we really value in board members. You guys also did a good job. I'll give you credit for for forgetting for for forcing the relationship beforehand. Meaning, let's actually figure out what this relationship could look like before formally working together. Whether that's hey, like curious, are there any customers in your portfolio you could introduce us to, or what about hires and how we think about that? And you know, I feel really lucky to have gotten to know a bunch of the Stitch team. But just as you, as a lot of the team was considering joining, being able to tell at least our investor side what got us excited, being able to do those things is an ask every founder should feel comfortable and and expect of their investors. And I know y'all are doing the same, not boring capital at the same time. 
Y'all was very, very, very generous with our one person shop, but thank you. So you had mentioned, you had mentioned uh, Chatham there and there's something that you've told me about before that, that he's told you, which is to go, go slow, to go fast. What does that mean? And how are you, how are you putting that into practice at Stitch? Yeah, I think we've spent a lot of the last year making sure we like nailed a lot of the infrastructure as well as the first product, which was email magic links and all the experiences that come with that. So that's like the developer dashboard, the self-serve signup, client libraries, sort of really building like the best version of that first product rather than focusing on building a ton of products at once. And now that we've laid that like foundation and sort of blueprint, I think it's been pretty remarkable to see, you know, over the past quarter plus how fast we're now able to ship new products. And I think spending like a year laying that foundation definitely felt like you know, it's taking a really long time, but it pays so many dividends at the end of the day, because if you like haven't figured out how to like sort of build an individual product, how are you going to build six more on top of that? You're going to waste a bunch of time, like figuring it out each time. And I think another thing that we've focused a lot on as well is like recruiting and making sure that we, you know, spent time hiring sort of a solid first team and then continuing to invest over time because it takes a long time to recruit people. And if you aren't always prioritizing that, you're going to end up sort of in a bad situation down the road. And I think that can consistently feel like it's something that, you know, maybe takes a lot of time or there's like so many other things with like product and customers that you might want to focus on, but continuing to prioritize recruiting will be the only way that we set ourselves up for success down the road. Garv, I'd love to ask you here. VCs get a bad rap for pouring a bunch of money into a company and then just making them grow really, really, really fast. How do you feel as a board member about the go slow to go fast thing? And like, what's the right balance there? Like in seven years, if they're still going slow to go fast, is that an issue? How do you think about that from the investor perspective? Yeah. Look, I, I think the, the simple answer is if you don't have the right muscles up front, then things won't work. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and the, the, the quote that stuck out was, you know, Michael Jordan saying something like, you can't get bored of the process. And I think that applies to, to early product building at the same time. You just, you have to keep asking the right questions and making sure you're covering the gaps in what you're building, because you might, you might be able to build a great company or a, a good company and a meaningful company with a decent amount of revenue with real gaps. And you could have, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, but this is a very well-connected group of founders and investors and employees. We could get to a bunch of the big contracts out there and be at massive revenue amounts tomorrow. I think that the idea is how do we build the exact right muscles that we're getting you know, uh, the real self-serve channel working by itself and people want to come to us and they want to grow on the back of, of Stitch. And that will be the product feedback that we get from customers to inform where we where we end up down the road. And so in some ways, I think that muscle is the most important thing. And in seven years, I think we probably will be having the same conversation, maybe not about the core products we're building today, but about the next phase of Stitch and the phase after that. And so as, we, as long as we approach these new inflection points that way, I think that's the way, you know, hopefully this capital can be used to create something really massive. This is why spending the time and getting your investors right is so important. So another thing that you mentioned there that I've been dying to know about, and I don't even have to hire engineers, but every portfolio company that I talk to is like, all right, could you just like tweet something and like, please help us hire engineers. And I don't think it's actually that easy. So how do you hire great engineers? You've done an amazing job. Maybe tell us a little bit about the team and then how you've done it. Yeah, I think 
focusing on like each hire and making sure that they're setting you up for success for the next hires after that is super important as well. I think we, you know, took the time to hire a fantastic sort of early cohort of people. And that just like compounds right now, people look at our team and they're like, wow, that's an amazing team. I, I think I want to work with them. Right. I, I feel like I can learn from them. And so I think that just like makes it easier over time. And so it's, really about putting that investment in. I think we're fortunate to have pretty strong networks in the Bay Area with engineers, et cetera. That's been helpful for some of our hires, but you can't just hire based on network. And so really putting time into sourcing from the early days, I'm super fortunate to my time at Plaid where I got to do that some and learn sort of how to like think about recruiting, how to think about your interview panel as like an opportunity to sell candidates as well, and how to just sort of like structure the whole process. You're selling them from day one and getting them excited. I think one of the benefits of our product is that we're selling to developers. And so anything we do for like marketing to try and get customers is also marketing to potential hires. And I think from like day one, we've gotten really high response rates of people saying, Hey, this sounds super interesting. Love what you're building. Like maybe I'm interested in talking or maybe I like just started a new job and now is not the right time. But I think people resonate with the idea, um, especially on the engineering side of the house. And so that can make it easier. So yeah, I think there's like no silver bullet, but like just being willing to put the time in is, is the most important thing. Have any customers gotten pissed at you for stealing engineers? think we've had that happen yet <laughs> Becky, don't put that into the universe <laughs> i think i would i think they'd just be happy for for that engineer to get to go work <laughs> at a place like stitch i've definitely had people that i tried to recruit and you know maybe they just take it a new job or something else and they've got an integrated stitch at their companies so it's like yeah both sides for us is is super valuable I do think that's such a unique dynamic of, of developer tool companies and, and then stitch in particular one thing y'all have been really strong at is offer to close rate. People, once they get an offer from Stitch, they've, they've been very excited and you're not losing people from that stage. What, what, are, your, what are your tips? Like what, what's working well at that last closing process of hiring? Yeah, so it's evolved a little bit, but I think one thing that we've done from basically day one when it was just Reed and me, and as the team has grown, we've continued this practice the way we give offers to people is we schedule a Zoom call and for like an engineer, you know, it comes from me and they can't see who else is on the invite. And then everyone that was on their interview panel joins the Zoom and surprises them. And we all go around and say why we're excited about them potentially joining and the impact we think they could have on the team. And I think that really gets people excited, right? You want to feel like the team wants you to join and that you're going to succeed there. And that really gives people sort of a, a view into what that could look like. In the very early days when it was just the two of us and we were like asking people to take a really big bet on, you know, working with these two random people, we gave people intros to people we'd worked with before as like references on ourselves. And so I think that was really valuable to hear, you know, our past coworkers from Plaid, et cetera, talk about like what it was like to work with us. So people could understand sort of what they were getting themselves into. 
now that the team has grown a bit more, it's more about like the other people on the team to some degree. And so now we offer more chats with existing people on the team. We have people send them an email when they get an offer to just like sharing their excitement and sort of, you know, our team is like one of our best selling points, right? So how do you leverage that to close candidates? And then the other thing that I think we have asked Gaurav to do a bunch, as well as a ton of other investors is have those sell conversations, because I think the reason you join a company like Stitch is because of that huge potential upside and growth. And to hear the investor's perspective, I think can be really valuable just to sort of like understand, you know, why is Stitch out of all the venture backed companies out there, a really interesting one to join? And what is that sort of upside potential? The one last thing I'd add is when a lot of candidates will ask about like, what is your vision and roadmap? And I, I think what I found on the other side of the table is often like founders are happy to tell you about like the high level vision, but sometimes they're a little bit cagey around like, here's like phase two or phase three of like how we're going to bring the product market or what we're going to do. And I think we try to be like, we try not to be cagey at all when it comes to like what we're going to do. Like yesterday we were on a call with a cell chat where I think I pretty much gave them like a pretty detailed three to five year plan of like our phases of where we see the product evolving. And I was like, I really don't care if you go write a medium post on this and like give it to all of our competitors. Like, I'm just not that worried about that. And I I've noticed that a lot of people resonate with just having like a lot of honesty, both because they, they get excited about what we're working on, but also it gives them an insight into how we work with the rest of the team once you're on the team as well, which is even more transparency than that. And so I think that's been helpful too. So what is the very detailed three to five year roadmap for Stitch? <laughs> but no, what, yeah, we're, we're getting, we're getting to the end here. I'd love to hear, you know, the, to the extent that you're willing to share kind of where you see the next few years heading high level, and then we'll look on the side for some questions. Yeah, totally. So Right now, like we, we talked about kind of how we're building a platform for passwordless authentication, but that we're much more interested in this like high level user infrastructure, user management as a service. By, you know, middle of 2022, you'll see if you like, kind of keep up with our home site and you look at the products that we're releasing, we'll have built a lot of the passwordless platform. There'll always be more for us to add to that, more functionality, et cetera, but you will have a lot of those primitives and then also like the front end UIs wrapping them so that you don't have to build those if you don't want to. Then the question for us becomes like, what is the next phase in terms of how you make that extremely valuable as like user management service for your customers? And one of the things we're really excited about that we're starting to spec out is like, how would you build um, a plugin ecosystem for people to do other interesting things with their users. So if you have a million users on Stitch and we create an open API where you can create a plugin similar to what Shopify does with their merchant, their merchant sites where like they're not going to build like a review system or a app A or app two, there's thousands of different capabilities merchants want related to their site that it does not make sense for Shopify to build. That is the same with us and like user management and user engagement. So I'm not going to go rebuild Qualtrics or Delighted for you to do NPS and customer satisfaction surveys, but I would be open to building a plugin uh, ecosystem where somebody can build against that and either monetize it or offer it for free, whatever they want to do. And then I think like the long-term vision after that phase is how can you get, once you're at Ubiquity, to be this kind of passport for the internet so that you can take your user profile, which has a, you know, a lot of user data underneath your profile, but it's also very secure and low friction for you to transfer it, whether that's with a biometric on a native device or whether it's WebAuthn, which is now uh, web biometrics that are possible. And how can you allow yourself to kind of like onboard across the internet without having to break all of those handshakes in between like, you know, we're always logged into our device and browser, then why do I have to go log into like 
a thousand different accounts underneath them. Uh, and so kind of allowing you to kind of shift that across the internet more seamlessly. Incredible. Well, I guess two questions from the audience. One is simple, dev tools that you like using internally besides Linear. Well, that's a good question. We really love Linear. Honeycomb is something that we invested in really early on that I think has paid a lot of dividends in terms of debugging. What else is interesting in our workflows? We use you know, GitHub, all of that. I think Linear is probably like the main tool that we use when it comes to like product development. A lot of engineers are like deep in Figma too with the design team, which I think is valuable. So I don't think we have any like super secret sauce there. Does Linear have a 100 NPS? I've never heard anybody say a bad thing about Linear. <laughs> I feel like they need a new survey question because I literally yesterday was looking at our bill for Linear and I was like, oh, we should pay them a lot more. That is okay. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not going to tell your friends maybe, but you would you would pay more. And then what, for, from Niall, what has been your rubric mental model around thinking through staffing decisions for the early team? So who to hire, why, like the sequencing piece of hiring? Yeah, I, I definitely think this has been like one of the biggest things I've had to learn as we've grown the engineering team um, is making those decisions. I think we focused on what I would call like mid-level to senior hires and sort of building out that initial team with that profile is important because it's like people who know what they're doing, they can come in, hit the ground running, but they're still like deep in the weeds coding. And at the early days, you need people to just like write code and, and ship product. And so now as the team has grown, we've continued to build out on both like more senior as well as slightly more junior hires as well as the, as the team has grown and bringing in engineering management as well. That's been a huge, I think, just like velocity supercharge to have more people involved in that. And I think like it, you kind of just have to be ready to like change your plan too as you get new inputs. Each person you hire can really change team dynamics at this stage. And so as you hire more people, understanding what their skill set is and where their strengths are, and then, you know, thinking about the next hire in terms of like rounding out that team. So you're not looking for everyone to be great at everything, but you're looking for the team as a whole to have spikes that complement each other's. And then I guess the last question from Ruben. And this is perfect because you're bringing together the Stitch community here. But at what point did you decide to start investing in your community, i.e. the Slack events like this, et cetera? I feel like Ruben just gave us the toss-up, the, the nice web at the end <laughs> to tie the bow. So pretty. Thank you, Ruben. I think it's something that we've always valued and known is important and have sort of naturally gravitated towards. I wouldn't say that we've like spent a ton of concerted effort on any of the community building. I think like it's something that we enjoy doing and so naturally want to spend time on. I'm super excited. Our first developer relations person joined this week. So now we have someone who's like fully just focused on nurturing and building that community. I, I would say that what Reed and I have done is like okay so far, but I wish we'd invested more in it. It's just one of those things that can be hard to prioritize. So I think we like emphasized starting it. And, and that's honestly part, probably like the most important piece is just like starting having something. And then now we'll have someone who is focused on it. Well, I think that wraps us up. Reed, Juliana, Gaurav, thank you so much for, for doing this today. I learned a ton. I kind of want to go start a company now. Any closing words that any of you want to leave everybody here with today? Well, first off, thanks, Paki, Gaurav, for joining and also for leading the panel. I mean, the one thing I would just say is like reflecting back on making that decision to get a start a company, 
I remember there, like, there are the logistical pragmatic concerns. And then there's also like, is it how like crazy is this going to be? Like, is this going to be fun to have to work like every hour of every day thinking about this problem? And I'd say, if you're excited about what your like idea is right now, it actually, it does not feel like work relative to all of my previous jobs. Yes. There's a lot of stuff you have to deal with, but like, to me, it's been the most fun I've had in my career. And I didn't know if that was going to be the case. I didn't know if it was going to be like a grind in order to do this. And that's been one of the really pleasant things about company building is just how much fun and joy it is. So I encourage people to go do it if they want to do it. It's an incredible feeling. It's awesome. How should people get in touch with you all? Yes. So stitch.com is our website. If you want to check out the products and sign up or contact us, but also I am McStemple on uh, Twitter, M-C-S-T-E-M-P-E-L. Not doesn't really roll off the tongue. I think I'll hand it over to Juliana. My Twitter handle is also way too long. It's Juliana <laughs> E. Lamb. But yeah, we're both super active on Twitter. So that's probably the best place to engage. It's stitch, S-T-Y-T-C-H.com for everybody out there listening. Thank yeah. you all for joining. Thanks. Appreciate it, Packy. Thanks,